Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Toby. We're the co-founders of Ask Us For Ideas, or Alfie as most people call it, where we help the world's most ambitious businesses, large or small, to connect with a collection of the best and most exciting creative agencies from around the world. Being at the intersection of these brands and creative teams for the best part of a decade has allowed us to get to know some truly exceptional people. This podcast, Private Views, aims to shine a light on that, with the first series publishing conversations inside some of the industry's most exciting creative studios, digging deep, looking beyond their portfolios and into their unique experiences and thought processes. For this episode, we head back to New York to visit Gretel. As much as they help their clients cut through the noise and get heard, they themselves keep a low profile. Humility, they say, is key. It's a necessary prerequisite for what they see as core to their work, the ability to truly listen. We will fight for good ideas and we will fight for our perspectives, but it's always in service of, you know, solving a problem. And I think, you know, for us, we have to put egos aside. You know, it's we work super fluidly, we work super close together, we're small. Um, so I think there's there's really no room for, for egos in a place like this. And I think uh, that definitely, you know, makes the focus on the work, which I think it should be. Their skill as listeners is perhaps why they've attracted a number of the world's best storytellers as clients. The New York Times, Netflix, Viceland, National Geographic, Paramount, and MoMA, Many of these are brands with a century or more of prominence, and the ones that aren't are certainly on course to get there. Gretel's work somehow manages to capture that gravitas while creating strategies and design work that is succinct and original. Our producer David Michon visited Gretel in their offices near Madison Square Park in Manhattan, where he speaks to them about how they keep egos in check, their clients' needs at the lead of their design work, and why they're not only keen on maintaining a small studio, but also a small studio mentality. Hi, I'm Greg Hahn. I'm the owner and founder of Gretel. A thing that we talk about here quite a bit is the idea of ego. And, you know, as we interview creatives to bring in, it's a thing that comes up in every single conversation is this is an egoless company. We're humble, but yet we're also, we take pride in our work. We're really attuned to our craft. We want to be the best company in the world in terms of the offering that we give, I think the difference is wanting it for, you know, personal gain, for notoriety. I don't think that we're in it for that. We're really in it to do the best work. And I think other good things will come to you when you focus on your work that way. Um, In a simple sense, ego represents rigidity in my mind. And especially when you come to talking to a client, you're hearing through your own structure. You're thinking about your process first and what they're saying second. And really you need to disconnect from that. It's a Zen process. You really have to kind of disassociate in a sense and really let them in while at some deep level still guiding them and asking the right questions to get the right answers. Uh, Like most things, there's a paradox built into it. But uh, I do think that we've found that ego 
can really hinder the discovery process. It, it hinders true listening and it also creates problems internally with working with staff. We've all worked with people that are very ego-driven, they're doing things to get their name out there and you can feel it in the office when somebody is working on those principles. It just starts ruffling feathers and the reason is because that person isn't thinking of others as much as they're thinking of themselves. That's a pretty basic principle. I'm Ryan Moore, Executive Creative Director and Partner here at Gretel. Yeah, I think, you know, we're about 20 people here in New York. It's the only office and we're all kind of in one big room. And I do think when people come in, sometimes they, they ask, is this it? <laughs> you know, and I think that's, that's we take that as a compliment because I think we do have some, some big clients um, and do some sort of very visible work. And it's all done by a pretty small team. Our design team, creative team is about hovering between, you know, 10 and 12 and, and then the rest is support um, and project management and operations and you know we're, we're all pretty we all wear a lot of hats I think we all kind of bounce around quite a bit through different roles um, what sets us apart I think that's a that's a question you're probably asking everyone in the studio and other studios as well um, I do think it is related to that idea that we're we are not huge um, we are a relatively small-ish I think is a term we like to kick around shop um, and because of that, our teams have to do a lot of different work. And each individual on those teams has to do a lot of different work. That might mean writing, that might mean designing for motion, that might mean, you know, moving between things like brand architecture, uh, identity, things like logo design, and then all the way over to um, marketing and copywriting. And some of those roles are taken on by the very same people. Um, doing multiple sort of tasks and disciplines. Um, yeah, fluidity is certainly a word that people have been using a lot. Um, what does that mean for you if you could, you could kind of define it in your own terms? Um, fluidity, yeah, so I think we talk a lot about clarity here as well, and I think those, those two ideas are related, and I think the process by which we arrive at clarity internally and for our clients is by nature very sort of fluid. It's often digging beneath the brief, uh, finding out what the client is trying to do, what their brand really means, and what the real problem we're trying to solve is. And sometimes the brief can be a symptom of a deeper problem. Um, sometimes the scale of the engagement can really escalate on the heels of what we deliver. Um, but I think by keeping an open mind and an open ear, we have to be able to sort of take all the different curveballs that come up through the creative process and weave them back under a singular brand idea that can that the consumer maybe feels, even if they can't quite articulate, whoever the end audience is for this product has to be able to sort of feel a consistent voice across all these different channels. So for us, that means going into a project, maybe not even knowing what the, specifics out, the specific output will become. Um, we had a job with the New York Times to create a marketing campaign for The Daily and that was basically the brief, like, what do we do here? How do we get people that we know are going to love this product to give this product a chance? And how are we going to advertise a thing that is a, basically an audio podcast, um, narrative news format? How do we get that into people's ears um, through the forms of, you know, traditional advertising channels? And so that ended up taking the form of um, some video activations, uh, print and out of home, uh, targeted uh, media buys in local markets around the country, but distilling the essence of this sort of opaque product into a messaging architecture and into 
a sort of visual expression for this thing that is just audio was really interesting. And I think more and more of those briefs are open-ended because brands have so many options and because the, the kinds of products we're advertising are so different and in some cases so personalized that we have to be able to, to roll with it and, and be very fluid. That's a really long-winded answer to a really succinct question, so apologies for that. Could you kind of describe or define what a, a kind of small studio mentality is or means um, and maybe why you think that's something that you really need to hold on to? Sure. Yeah, I think the first thing is that we're, we're design first. I'm a designer uh, at heart and that's the, the business that I think that we're in even while we're doing very heavy lifting in terms of strategy. Um, I think the big thing is looking at strategy as, as a creative process as much as design is a creative process. And to be honest, design is kind of the, the um, rubric for everything, in my opinion. Uh, creative is, is sort of a misnomer in a way because I think strategy is a creative process. And I think that business management is a creative process. Um, I think project management is a creative process. It's all about visualization and your ability to visualize and then act on those, those visualizations. So that to me is, is a creative process. Yeah, so the other piece of that, one is this design first mentality, but the other is a, in a small studio, you're wearing a lot of hats. And that's really the thing that I think is interesting about this place and the history of the place. You know, it started, it was, it was just me. And so I was literally wearing every hat that you can imagine from answering phones to, you know, designing, creative directing, editing, whatever it was. And as we grew, obviously some of those things get handed off, uh, but I don't want it to become a place where you wear one hat and where you, you live in a silo and then there's a, a baton pass between, uh, you know, strategy to design, or design to motion or project management to design. I really want everybody to have this kind of polymath mentality where you're expected to jump in, designers are expected to jump in and do copywriting. Um, strategists are expected to chime in on design. The whole point of what we do is marrying the strategy to the design. And so anything we can do to remove the barriers between this sort of intellectual thinking and this very intuitive, abstract process of design, uh, we want to remove those barriers. And I think the idea of a boutique mentality is that there are less barriers, that it is a more fluid, there's more fluid movement between the different disciplines within the studio. Mm. Fluidity is a word that's been mentioned a lot. Mm -hmm. Wondering if you could uh, define it, basically. Another thing for you to define for me. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing about fluidity for us is it's a thing that we see, it's relevant to us because it's something that we're seeing from the way that we operate on a small scale in terms of individuals in the office, the systems that we're developing for our own work, the systems that we develop for our clients. There's a fluidity built into that that we can talk about and then the way that branding in general is going and what I kind of see for brands in the future in terms of the way that they interact with consumers. 
this thought of fluidity binds all of these. But I do think by and large that, yeah, brands need to be a little bit more fluid, a little less rigid, uh, both in terms of the identity system, but even more so in terms of the way the brand interacts with the consumer. That's a much bigger thought that I think is sort of in development right now, at least here at Gretel. Uh, and we're applying with our clients, and I think it's gonna be a while before clients by and large can really apply the thinking that we're talking about. Um, because it really has to do with the way that the consumer interacts with the brand. Yeah, and uh, could you elaborate on that? How is that? How is that relationship changing? Yeah, I think you know if you look historically at the way that brands operate, because of technology alone, the brand basically has to exist in a kind of static way, a rigid way, where there's there's clear. Uh, aspects to the brand or offerings from the company. And then the consumer is expected to navigate through those offerings to find the thing that they want. Uh, what technology is allowing and what is a more humanizing experience for the consumer is the brand understanding the consumer instead of the consumer having to understand the brand at an individual level. So as an example, you know, a hospitality brand let's just say Marriott, for example, who is not a client of ours. Um, but you might like traveling in urban areas, cosmopolitan cities. Uh, I might like traveling in remote places, in boutique hotels, and you might like big grand hotels. Your experience with that brand, they will understand that, they will cater to that, they will offer that up to you, so your experience of the Marriott brand might be, oh, Marriott is all about uh, cosmopolitan cities and grand hotels. My experience of Marriott might be, oh, Marriott is all about high-end boutique experiences in remote places. That idea that they can shape the brand to your taste is the, the idea of the brand of the future. Those brands then are less rigid. It's less about these rigid strata between their offerings. And it's more about just giving you the easiest access to the thing that you want. And that fluidity in their system is the thing that allows that. And technology also is a big piece of that. You can't do that uh, without knowing your tastes. And we've all sort of seen the good and the bad versions of this. You know, uh, when it comes to marketing, uh, micro-targeting of ads. We've all had the experience of shopping for a vacuum and then 10 minutes later getting an ad for the vacuum you were just shopping for. And that is unsettling on a couple of levels. You know, one is you really feel like they're watching everything that you're doing, which is not a good feeling. And B, they're offering something that you already looked at. You already showed an interest in, maybe you already purchased. So it's kind of a, a a failure on that front. But we've also seen, I've at least seen the much better version of this. I'm always sort of amazed with the ad feeds that I'm getting on Instagram, how often I'm actually interested in what they're serving up to me, because they're obviously using other data to look at what I'm interested in at a macro level, instead of just, oh, he's interested in vacuums. It might be, oh, he was looking at 
a Dyson vacuum, so he's interested in in design, and you know, at a at a design and engineering level. So then they might serve up something to me that fits within that mold. Um, that actually becomes helpful to me. Whether it's invasive or not is another question. <clears throat> but it's it becomes a service instead of an annoyance, and it actually connects me to things that I might actually need or like instead of just blasting me with everything out there and hoping that eventually something sticks. Mm -hmm. uh, that experience I find dehumanizing. It's really, we all know this feeling of being bombarded and overloaded. And the promise of technology is to remove that. We're in a transition period where technology has evolved to give us access to so much but hasn't quite gotten to the point of figuring out how to give it to us in a way that doesn't feel like we're being blasted. I also wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, just the fact that a lot of clients, when they're looking to take on an agency, want to see a really rigid process because they want to know uh, kind of what they're paying for, or they want to have these particular moments that they can check in after a certain phase. So there's, you know, a presentation after this discovery phase and then a presentation after the. But it seems like in certain circumstances, maybe that kind of could work with a, a kind of Gretel approach, but in other ways, uh, not, uh, or in other circumstances, rather. Um, how do you uh, kind of circumvent that tendency towards uh, a, a client kind of wanting a rigid process? Yeah, I think certainly we're not going to our clients and saying, hey, we're gonna, we're, we're just gonna sort of wing it for <laughs> three months and then uh, come up with something. There, there's, there are certainly phases to the work that we do and, and we, we can outline those in schedules for our clients. I think the, the trick for us is how and when to brief design and get designers activated in the process, whether or not that's going to the client at that stage isn't really the point. So we might be moving pieces around a bit internally to just get the best result while following the schedule that we're on and trying to hit uh, you know, certain landmarks that we have. So as an example, you start out with discovery where there's this kind of download of all this information and then we're, we're taking key findings out of that. And those key findings might be to do with the product or the behavior of the company or the personality of the company or the history of the company. We're looking at all those things and seeing, well, what, what's tying these things together? And in a linear way, we're then taking those key findings and and collapsing them down and sort of shuffling them in terms of hierarchy, which is the leading thought and which is a secondary thought, and then writing around those and then trying to land on a couple of brand ideas or several brand ideas that speak to those key findings. Out of those, then funneling it down and coming up with one real brand idea that, that sums up as much of the heart of the brand as possible, then in a linear process that goes to the design team and they start working with that. The whole thing is just getting the intuitive piece, which is tends to be this kind of poetry that happens at the brand idea level and then certainly at the identity creation level. We want that running a little more in parallel with the intellectual piece, which is downloading and digesting all this, this 
information that we get from a client. So does that mean that we don't have a design lab phase? We do. But does it mean that we can be using design to help inform strategy at an earlier level? Or more importantly, using intuition to guide strategy at an earlier level? That's the thing. Like, how do we get the you know, intuitive gut involved sooner in the process? Because that's going to lead to something that's more intuitively powerful. I'm uh, Daniel Edmondson. I'm the strategy director here at Gretel. Just in talking with Greg previously, um, he, he was saying that, you know, even at times Gretel uh, is maybe kind of a design-led, um, you know, in certain projects, and then strategy kind of follows to kind of support or make sense of that design intuition. So that's a kind of unique relationship between strategy and design that mm -hmm. it would be great to hear you elaborate on. Totally. Yeah, I think, I think there's an overarching supposition in uh, the design and creative world that, you know, strategy often will have um, all the answers or have to come to the table with all of the answers. But I think here, um, you know, I think everybody is searching for those for those same answers. And, you know, I think the role of strategy, at least, is to um, provoke the right conversations, um, to be kind of culturally fluent, to be able to have the right insights just to spark the kinds of, of uh, you know, dialogue that we need to help to come to design solutions. So I think strategy and design are really fluid here. You know, they really have this relationship where we're working together from start to finish. And I think that is uh, really unique. Yeah, Greg's also mentioned that, the, this idea of like the importance of listening, which I think a lot of agencies talk about, but also this idea of, of humility and kind of putting your ego on the shelf. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's definitely a really, really big one. And I think, you know, it's it's sad sometimes, I think, in this industry that, you know, the you know, creative um, is first and foremost, you know, so related to the the agency that that kind of puts it out there that those things are so intertwined. And I think, you know, we will fight for good ideas and we will fight for our perspectives, but it's always in service of, you know, solving a problem. And I think, you know, for us, we have to put egos aside. You know, it's we work super fluidly. We work super close together. We're small, um, so I think there's there's really no room for for egos in a place like this. And I think uh, that definitely you know makes the focus on the work, which I think it should be. Um, and you mentioned the team here is is growing or set to grow. Um, what are you kind of looking to add in, or uh, how do you plan on on kind of growing? the team um, in terms of what skills you feel like you need or reinforced? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's, you know, we're all, uh, I'm sure Greg has talked about polymaths before, but I think, you know, even just the importance of generalists over specialists is, is an important one mm -hmm. for us. I think, you know, I think on really specific projects, if we're into UX or if we're building an app or something, obviously we have to bring specialists in in that way. But at the same time, I think everyone here is so grounded in just uh, culture, um, kind of just what's going on that, you know, having smart generalists um, involved in any project can help to um, help to, to crack it, really. So I think we're always just looking for people who, you know, almost know um, uh, a little bit about a lot of things. Um, and I think that's really valuable for us. 
And I also want to ask you just kind of, you know, you also mentioned that the types of projects that you are getting in is, is kind of changing. Just wondering, like, what is most exciting to you in terms of a, a potential new clients or projects, um, whether it's just a kind of certain ask of theirs or a certain sector or type of client or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I think the most exciting projects for us are clients or businesses or brands that really have their back against the wall, that have a real problem to solve. Um, because I think for us, you know, coming in at the beginning and helping to really frame, uh, you know, what what it is that we're solving for, again, like, what are we here to do, is always most exciting. So, you know, people who are, are brands that really are struggling in some way or, again, think they have a smaller problem, but it, we can actually help to them to realize that it's something much bigger uh, are definitely the things that we like to work on. Um, I also, um, just as a kind of final question or a couple of questions, uh, uh, you know, also talking with Greg, he was he was kind of saying, which you, which you've touched on this this just this idea of the relationship between a kind of customer consumer and a brand uh, changing quite significantly, um, where uh, you know a customer doesn't kind of navigate a brand, but instead is kind of I guess surrounded by it. Um, th that's a kind of weird paraphrase of his, his words, but wondering if you could kind of walk me through that change um, just I, I, again, <laughs> even though you've kind of done it, but, but uh, it'd be great to hear more. Yeah, totally. I mean, we talk about this a lot. It's, it's, we no longer live in a world where brands are competing against other brands. We're really all competing for people's time. So are people going to spend, you know, a few minutes, um, you know, reading an article? Are they going to spend a few minutes, uh, you know, talking to a friend? Or are they going to spend a little time with the brand? Uh, and I think, you know, in that respect, um, we have to be clear and we have to be uh super um, uh, just succinct with what we're saying to the world. So I think um, when we're working with brands, it's it's also, you know, making them realize that we live in this complex web of culture now. And, you know, breaking through is actually much more important than, you know, getting too involved in this idea of the quote brand. It's, it's how are you, you know, what are you saying that's interesting? What are you saying that um, is going to attract, you know, a like-minded perspective in some way? And so, like, it's, again, like, the, the world being flatter and more fluid um, makes it harder for brands in a lot of ways to uh, connect to the people that they want to connect with. Because it's not necessarily about a transaction. Right, exactly. It's, it's, it's about time. You know, it's, it's, about, um, it's about some kind of relationship um, that already occurs or maybe fractured. Um, but it's, it's about making some kind of connection that, that goes way beyond transactions um, because there are just so many more options and so much more to think about right now. Great. Thank you very much. Cool. Thanks so much. That was producer David Michon visiting the New York offices of Gretel. A big thank you from myself, Nick, and Toby for listening. Thank you also to Greg, Larissa, Daniel and Ryan for their time. To Sean Crook for editing this episode. To George Grinling for the theme music. And to Maid Thought for Private Views as Visual Identity. To find other episodes, head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud. And to find out more about us, please visit our website, aufi.com. We're also on social media channels using the handle at Ask Us for Ideas. And finally, please do share this episode, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and do listen to the others we've put out as part of this series. Until next time. Bye.